Man, another episode with a great guest, Chris Lucas, professional actor. The guy's been on 30 Rock, The Sopranos, and he's a motivational speaker and a leading Disney expert. This is going to be awesome. I really got to thank my producer. Well, that is, if I had a producer. Welcome to the Press Club C Podcast. I am Ray Keating. This sixth episode is brought to you by my book, The Traitor, a Pastor Stephen Grant novel. More on that later. Now, this is another special episode since I'll be chatting with Chris Lucas, who is an actor, author, motivational speaker, and not only a lifelong fan of all things Disney, but a leading Disney expert. And that's a big issue with me since I also publish, edit, and write for the DisneyBizJournal.com website. Now, before we get to Chris, a quick reminder about why this podcast, by the way, is called Press Club C. Each letter stands for stuff we talk about uh, during various episodes. So P is for politics, R is for religion, mainly Christianity, E is for economics, S is for sports, the second S is for stories, books and writing, my own books, other books, fiction, nonfiction, reviews, authors, etc., C is for culture, pop culture and otherwise. L is for life, you know, the big catch-all. U is for understanding, so also to lessons in history and education and business and so on. B is for business and entrepreneurship. And C in Press Club C is for conservative. Why? Because I am one. So right now, let's get to my interview with Chris Lucas. I am pleased to have a very special guest for this episode, Chris Lucas who is an actor, author, motivational speaker, and a lifelong fan of all things Disney. And we're going to add details to that intro uh, during our conversation. So let's start off. Chris, thanks for, for coming on the Press Club C podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, first off, just to, I hope all is going well with you and your family uh, in terms of the, you know, the crisis, the COVID-19 crisis and all. I hope everybody's doing okay. Yeah, we are. Thank you. And same to you. Good, good. Yep, we are. Um, now, before I get to picking your brain on Disney matters, let's first talk about um, your acting work in terms of television, movies, and I noticed in your bio, yes, video games. So how did that start? And, you know, why don't you walk us through some of your parts and so sure. on? That would be great. I, I've been a professional actor since I was a teenager, actually. I was fortunate uh, I live right outside the New York City area and grew up here, so I auditioned for a show and got it, and Charlton Heston was part of the show, and Nathan Lane and Glenn Close, so you know, people say, where did you go to acting school? That was my acting school, learning from them. Neat. Uh, yeah, and but uh, the problem was, that was I was 15 years old, and I thought, oh, this is easy, and you know, the arrogance of youth, you think it's going to be handed to you, and I kind of, my 20s were the fallow period where I expected the phone to ring, and hey, it's the... It wasn't until I started taking it seriously as a business, which most uh, when I talk to young actors now that I'm the old guy, uh, I, I say, you know, the more business books you read, 
the better off you'll be because you are a product. You, you know, people don't want to think of themselves as that, but it's like I'm selling a thing of soap. I've got to convince the casting directors that I'm the one that they want. So when I started doing that, then it picked up a little bit more. And from there, I've been fortunate now. You mentioned video games. I'm I'm the voice of, he was Congressman Shrub. Now he's President Shrub in the Grand Theft Auto video game series. And um, I was on 30 Rock for a while. I was, I was young Jack Donahue, so Alec Baldwin's character. Whenever oh, they, neat. yeah, and even we're just we're not even that far apart in age, but whenever they flash back to him, uh, it, it was always a joke. It was the '80s, and they had me dressed in the craziest '80s outfits. And uh, they part of the reason why I was cast was because I'm the same size, same eye color, same hair color as Alex, so it worked out. So we can, we kind of looked similar enough. And he's he was a wonderful guy, so it was a great show to work on. Is that like a bonanza thing, where the, where the dad was like only a couple years older than his son? <laughs> yes, we, I mean, it's, we we joked about, it. and also the other thing is, I look, you know, I was supposed to be playing young Alec, but I I've seen, you know, Hunt for Red October movies with young Alec, and I don't look anything like he did back then. He looks a lot different now than he did then, like we all did when we were younger. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun. So it'd and, be, and, no, I was going to say you you were on uh, The Sopranos too, right? Uh, yeah, actually, it was a byproduct of uh, living in New Jersey. One of the things, uh, you know, you always have to have other jobs, too, while you're acting. And I'm a tour guide. I'm a licensed tour guide. So I take people around New York City, and it's a lot of fun, and show them all the highlights. And somebody, a friend of mine at HBO, when The Sopranos became a big hit, they said, hey, would you mind taking a bunch of executives around New Jersey? Because you know the area, and maybe you can give them, like, a little tour of Jersey and talk about the neighborhoods. And so I did. And what I didn't realize, they didn't tell me, is that on that bus, they had a reporter from the AP there who filed a story that went all around the world. And then suddenly HBO was deluged with, you know, we want to take this tour, too. So it turned out I went up doing the Sopranos tour and we would have a bunch of guys on from the show every week would come on the tour, you know, here and there. And they all said to me, hey, you got to be on the show, too. So by season three, finally, they wrote a little role for me that was in two episodes and wound up getting killed by Sony's Tony's associates. So it was a lot of fun. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. And um, and a- anything else you want to mention on that front? I mean, that stuff to me is endlessly fascinating. That that you're and, and I and I also appreciate your point to, in terms of telling younger actors that you know, hey, read some business books because it's a business, and you know, you're a you're a brand, you're a product, and so on. And it's that's not just for acting; that's for a whole host. Of oh, other sure. Areas. You know, it's. I mean, that applies to any performing artist, any author, anybody like that. You know, you 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 have something to sell. It's in your own best interest to to read up on business books. You know, you don't have to take business. It helps if you do. But if not, there's especially now, there's so many things out there you can find that are good resources. But uh, people don't like to think of themselves as a product or a lot of like I'm not very good at selling myself or selling a product. But, you know, it's, it's necessary. So it, it, it's helped in acting. But it, what also helps people oh, I hear all the time, oh, it must be so tough to get into it. It's. And this is true for any profession. Once you get the job, your first job, if you show up, if you're professional, if you're polite, if you do what's asked of you and you don't cause any trouble or make any waves, you're going to get hired again. Word of mouth. Every industry is very small, including acting. So that, that helped me a lot was learning early on how to behave myself when I was on a set and, and to get hired back and to be, uh, you know, having other people say, hey, you want that guy to be working with us here. So it's, it's there's lots of things besides the acting that go into it. That's the, I, you know, as you were saying that, I remember a story about um, the Philadelphia story was remade as a musical. And for some reason, the title is with Bing Crosby. 
um, oh, and Frank high, Sinatra, high society, yeah, high society. Yeah. And there's a great story that I came across with that that you know Frank Sinatra basically was not showing up on time, you know, doing whatever he wanted and so on, and and all it took was Bing Crosby to tell him once, you know, hey, you have to act professional here, you know, let's do what we're supposed to do, and Frank was professional for the rest of the of the shoot. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I my one of one of my mottos that I go by is Harrison Ford, you know, one of the biggest actors in the world. His thing is he said the job of an actor is not the acting. That's the fun part. The job is looking for your next job because you're always going to be out of work. When his movie is done, that's it. You know, he's got to go find and he's Harrison Ford, but even he had trouble for a while there because he got typecast and now he's a little older, so he doesn't get the roles that he used to, and especially with women. So your job is always looking for your next job as a performer or author or writer, looking for that next sale and that next, you know, opportunity. Yep. And I, you know, I talk to writers a lot, authors a lot, and they, in particular, they just do not like the selling marketing end of things. And I get it. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a writer and I enjoy the the writing process, but because of my business background, I enjoy that part of it as well. But most writers are just like, no, <laughs> and you have to really convince sure. them to do it. Um, well, speaking of books, let's switch gears a little bit to your family. Um, specifically, um, tell us about your dad, Ed Lucas, and you co-authored a book with him, right? I did. Yeah. His, he, his story is an amazing story. He, uh, even if I wasn't his son, I, I would have wanted to write the book with him that he, uh, he was a baseball fan, grew up his whole life, loved the New York Giants baseball team uh, that are now the San Francisco Giants. And when he was 12 years old, he went out to play Sandlot baseball right after Bobby Thompson. Anybody who's a baseball fan knows the name that he hit, you know, the shot heard around the world. The Giants won the pennant, this miracle comeback. And my dad uh, was the pitcher and he threw the ball and the kid hit a line drive and it hit my father right between the eyes. And he was 12 years old. And if it happened today, they could fix it, but back then there was nothing they could do in 1951, and he went completely blind. And so he was depressed, as any 12-year-old would be. And my grandmother wrote letters to like Joe DiMaggio and, and Jackie Robinson and people like that, Willie Mays, and said, you know, hey, all she wanted was an autograph or something. And they, to a person, came to visit my dad in the hospital. Wow. And and yeah, which, you know, that might happen today, but the rest of it was like Phil Rizzuto who was the MVP of the World Series and one of the hottest stars in the American League and, you know, the linchpin of the Yankees, uh, he became my dad's best friend. He would pick my dad up and they'd go out and drive around and he'd take him out to a diner and he really kind of lifted my father's spirits. And he told him, he said, you know, this is not the end. If you get an education and you, you know, you, you lift yourself up, he said, I'll open some doors for you. I'll introduce you to some people. So long story short, my dad now, if we had an opening day, which we haven't had yet, uh, be this be his 65th straight opening day this year. So when opening day does happen, hopefully sometime this year, uh, he'll be covering it. And as he's now got the major league record, he, he said it two years ago it was the 63rd year. So I'm doing all that completely blind. He's an Emmy, Emmy winning broadcaster from now for 65 years. That is, that's an awesome story. And, and the name of the book is, is seeing home, the Ed Lucas story. Um, and that's fantastic that, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, I, I'm a New Yorker, so I want to interrupt people. But <laughs> when you were, you know, you were saying, yeah, that's good, but listen to the rest of this. And that's, that's fantastic. That's really a heartwarming story. That's wonderful. Um, and that, I noticed something that it's published by Simon and Schuster, but then I saw Derek Jeter publishing. What does Derek Jeter have a publishing? Obviously he, he does. But. He does. Well, because his role model, you know, is Michael Jordan. So the, the documentary is running now all about Jordan's life. And mm -hmm. uh, Michael Jordan, one of the things that he told Derek Jeter early on was, 
when you're done, when your career is over and the applause stops and you're off the stage, you, you got to have something else for the rest of your life. And Michael Jordan became a businessman and, you know, the owner, Derek pretty much followed the model, became a sports owner and everything else. And one of the things that Derek got into while he was still a player, he founded a, a publishing company with Simon and & Schuster. And he, one day I was with my dad at the ballpark and Derek came over and he said, listen, guys, he said, I, have you ever written the story of your father? Have you written the book? And I said, I've been thinking about it for years. He said, I want to be the guy that publishes it. The first book I want to publish is your book. So we were the very first book from Derek Jeter Publishing, and it, it wound up on the bestseller list. And it's now that it came out in 2015. So usually every year around Father's Day and around Christmas time, the book goes back up on the list, you know, sells a lot. We're usually opening day and baseball season. So we were very fortunate. And Derek is very hands-on, which he was. And uh, one of the things that people came to us and said, oh, if you're writing a book, you know, Ed, you've got all these stories, you can dig up dirt, you can tell stories. And we said, that's not us. That's not what my father does. He's more of a human interest type of, you know, uplifting thing. And so Derek came to us and said, I don't want any of that garbage. He said, I want more of, you know, your family stories, the faith-based stuff, all the things that make you who you are. And to his credit, he he ignored everyone that told him, even Simon Schuster said, get some dirt in there. And he said, no, they're not going to do that. Very cool. Good story. That's fantastic. Um, and we will put, by the way, links to that book and your book and your other, your, your site and so on in the, in the show notes, um, obviously. Now let's get to your interest in Disney. So where does that come from? What, where, you know, where did it start and how did it grow? Uh, give us a little background there. Well, I, you know, like everyone with Disney, it's it starts in the family usually. So my grandmother was a big Disney fan and other relatives, and she used to take us to uh, every Disney event that was in, you know, again, here in the New York area. There were a lot of them, but, but my first memory, the first movie I ever saw was Robin Hood at Radio City Music Hall in 1973. So uh, I was five years old at the time, and my grandmother took us there, and it wasn't just the movie. Uh, they had a pre-show with the Rockettes, and Mickey came out, and Minnie, and they did a whole thing, and then there was a little... Uh, Mickey Mouse short and then the movie and then after the movie they all came back out again and did a whole show so it was it was a big production and two things happened when I saw that I said a I love Disney now I look at this I see Mickey and and B I knew I wanted to be involved somehow in entertainment and show business what they were doing on stage I said wow you know I, I want to do that too so it's it's sort of that moment seeing that movie Robin Hood launched two paths in my life very cool um and and one of those things that you're doing and which I, again, I know about your book, which we'll talk about later, the top Disney, but, 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 um, you, so you do a one man Walt Disney show, right? Tell us, tell us about that. That's fascinating. I do. Yeah. And one of the things, um, you know, I've always loved Walt himself more than just the Disney, the brand and the company. It's Walt has fascinated me my whole life from, from a business perspective, you know, all the, the obstacles he had to overcome and, uh, just seeing him every Sunday night, even though I, I was born after he died, they still ran his introductions every Sunday night on the wonderful world. So I felt like I knew him and in 2000 or so, I was talking to a young actor again about the career. And I mentioned Walt Disney and they said, oh, isn't that like Betty Crocker or, or you know, uh, the Quaker Oats guy? Like it's just a name that somebody made up. They did, had, had no idea. And it, I, you know, like you, I was laughing. I was shocked. But then I, I found out that was quite common. There were a lot of kids out there that didn't know that there was an actual – they grew up with the name, but they didn't connect it to the person. So I decided I was going to somehow, you know – 
get his story out there. And so I, I developed a show. It was a one-person show, and it was all about Walt and his life. And I play Walt, and, and depending on the crowd, I, I do it you know, for libraries, for schools, sometimes in a theater. And the, the, the length of the show is up to the audience. So if it's a smaller thing, it's a half hour or so, and I could do it as much as two hours. And the topic, usually if I'm in a library, it's about Walt and books. And if I'm in, I did one for a senior citizen center, it's about Walt during the World War II era. So uh, it varies, but the basic show is basically Walt telling you about his life. And there's so much fascinating stuff in there. So it, it, that was 2001. I started it for his 100th birthday. So now it's been almost 20 years. Do you have any idea how many times you've done it? Oh boy, I lost count after a hundred. So okay, <laughs> I, all right. I, I, sh- I should have been better at tracking it, but you know, I, it. You know, the, once I started doing my father's book, I kind of slowed down a little bit because I feel like I use the analogy, and people aren't going to get this, but the the Ed Sullivan show, the man spinning plates, where he's running back and forth between the plates. So uh, that's what I felt like with tr- tr- trying to do the book and the show and the acting, because I was still on Thirty Rock. So there were a lot of things going on. So I kind of scaled back a little bit on the show and. Uh, after the Disney book came out last year, I had plans of bringing it back a little bit. And, uh, now, you know, it's kind of on hiatus like everything else, but hopefully we'll, we'll bring it back sometime later this year or early next year. Great. Great. Um, and you mentioned the book and that, that was more or less my introduction to you in terms of the, the top Disney book subtitle, 100 top 10 lists of the best of Disney from the man to the mouse and beyond. And, what pleased me so much was when I when I received the book, it wasn't just, you know, kind of a flimsy book of top tens. I mean, you what what came through in this book is your passion for it and your knowledge for all things Disney. And it was just it was a, a it's a wonderful read and it's one of those books. I wrote a review over at our uh, DisneyBizJournal.com site, and it's it's just a wonderful book in that you know, no matter where you are, I think in terms of your your level of Disney expertise, you know, you're going to find some wonderful stuff in there. I I mentioned in the review that I love the uh, the list about the people who've worked at or contributed to Walt Disney. You know, from Walt to Imagineers and animators and so on. Um, and you had some quirky lists in there as well. So I, I really enjoyed the book. And, and so, how did that come about? Um, you writing it? I mean, that's the first question. Well, it was an offshoot of the uh, the show, actually, because they had so much information about Walt and about his life and about the company that, you know, it, I couldn't put it all on the show. So I, I wanted to make a book out of it. One of the things, and, and you know this as an author, and, and you do it so well with your, your Pastor Grant books, is that if you're going to talk about a subject, what can you say that's different that that, that – anything else has been written on that subject before you. What is your unique take on it? Because readers, especially with Walt Disney himself, there have been hundreds of books written about him. The Disney company has had so many books. So what can I say that's different? So that was my challenge is how can I write a book about Disney and pour all my knowledge and passion into it, but make it something that's not like anything you've seen out there or close enough. And so one of the things I came up with was, you know, hey, a book of top 10 lists has never been in and it, and it started off as simply that a book of top 10 lists 100 of them with some you know round number and as it evolved it became which i didn't mean to sort of a connecting the dots of the company it tells the story of the whole company from beginning to end and it does it through lists so you you read something in the beginning about walt and then later on 
you read about one of the movies and you say, oh, I see why this setting was in that movie and why, because Walt loved it. So it all kind of, and you, you were talking about the people, you see how some of the people influenced later on what came in the parks and what came in. So I didn't mean for that to happen, but it just, my goal was to write, I guess, as any author does, my, I, I wanted to write a book that you would pick up let's say at 10 o'clock at night, just before bed. And you intend, okay, 11 o'clock, I'm going to shut the light out and go to sleep. And next thing you know, it's 2 a.m. and you're still reading and you can't stop. So that that's the kind of book I want to write always. And right. uh, I've been fortunate that people have told me that about this book is that it's one that they like reading and they can pick up and, you know, read little here and there. Absolutely. And, it, and you're right. It's, and, and I, I, I always find it fascinating when somebody goes into a book project and they have a certain idea and then as they get into it, you know, you can see the change and, and you talk about how, you know, you connect the the entire story of the company through these sure. lists. And, and that's very much the case. And that's, you know, I write, I mean, I write fiction and nonfiction, but particularly with the fiction stuff, you know, I get in there with my outline. And then as you start writing, you know, things change. The characters actually make you change things, if that yeah. makes any sense. So it's, um, it's interesting. And it's good to hear that that kind of happened with you. And, and again, the end product, I, you know, I, when I, I said in review that it should be on every Disney fans bookshelf, I didn't mean like you put it up on the bookshelf and you leave it there. This is definitely one you take down and you just have fun with it. And, you know, hopefully you get some among Disney fans and you're able to introduce Disney to people and you get some fun debates and discussions going. So I mean, do you have a, do you have a couple of, I don't want to put you on spot, but, you know, a couple of favorite lists that stick out in your mind that you particularly enjoy or you enjoy talking about? Well, I mean, definitely the ones that, that are closest to my heart are the, the lists about Walt, because, again, I, I people know a lot about the movies and they go, oh, I want to see if my favorite character's in there or my favorite writer's in there. But it's the ones about why I have a list of things that influenced Walt and people don't realize, you know, how America influenced him, how growing up on a farm influenced him, all these things that you go to the parks or you watch the movies and they just blend right in. But uh, I have a list of that. I have a list of people that influenced Walt, uh, a list of some of the greatest movies about Walt books about Walt. So the, the, the list about Walt are the ones that are closest to my heart, because again, I feel sort of a kinship with him and like, he's always looking over my shoulders and doing all this stuff. So uh, the, they start off the book and they're again, the sort of the core that sets you forward on the journey in the book. Very neat. And do you have, I have to ask, do you have more books in your head Any anything you're planning or? I mean, well, I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the funny thing about this book, we, it came out in 2019. So we, we stopped it at the end of 2017. And in three years, so much has happened in the Disney company that there's enough to go and update and have a whole second book in there. So that's in the works, the second book. And there were a couple of other projects that are, that are sort of here and there, one of them is in hiatus because of what's going on, because it involved visiting the parks a lot. But uh, yeah, there's a few other products coming out. Like, again, as you know, as an author, it's, do I have another one in me? Can I, can I pull out another book somewhere? <laughs> so it's, it's always scary when you, you're, you have a book and people enjoy it and you say, boy, how do I not so much top that, but at least even get to the level of what people are liking now. So um, it, it's either going to be baseball or Disney because those are the two books I've written before. So well, those, those are two things near and dear to my heart. So that's good. <laughs> um, so let's get to what's, you know, I get the other thing that fascinates me about your work is, and it, it, it's not a surprise in terms of what we're talking, what we've said already, but you, you have this depth of knowledge in a whole host of areas with Disney. Um, so what, what are you, give me some of your initial thoughts on, 
just broadly, whatever comes to mind in terms of the shutdown and the impact on Disney, um, just, you know, let's, let's kick off the conversation that way. What, what are you thinking on that front? Well, you know, they, it's a situation that's obviously affecting everyone in the world. So everyone's right. making sacrifices in some way and there's, there's gets a lot more attention. They're a lightning rod there. You know, people talk about Disney more than probably almost any other fortune 500 company. So, uh, you know, they, they are treading very carefully now because people, it's two separate things. It's the Disney brand, which everybody loves, and the Disney company, which is a company and uh, is answering to shareholders and has to make decisions. So it's it's a fine line for them to tread. And, you know, I, I don't speak for the Disney company, but you could look at their history and you could see what they've done in past situations. And I think they're making, in my opinion, they're, they're making the right moves here and being very cautious. They are a very risk-averse company. And so, yeah, we'd all love for the parks to open up and, you know, I'd love to head down there over the summer and visit a park. But I, they're doing the wisest thing by just letting it all play out first. And I, I think, again, this is just my opinion, but I have the feeling they're going to watch and wait for one of the major sports to open first and then maybe movie theaters coming back. And then they're not at the front of the line because if Disney wound up, let's say, theoretically, they open their parks on July 4th. Right. And then... Someone goes there, you know, a family decides to visit from Des Moines, Iowa and fly down to Florida because the parks are open and they pick up the virus in Des Moines or somewhere else along the way. And they go to Disney and have fun and come back and suddenly they're sick or God forbid somebody dies from it. Every headline across the world is going to scream, you know, family visits Disney Park and gets sick from the virus. And they don't need those headaches right now. So Disney, in my opinion, I'm sure they would love more than anybody else to open up right away or sooner rather than later. But they're going to wait because they, they don't need to deal with everything they need to deal with right now. If they had to open with all the limiting people getting in and social distance. I mean, it, if you really think about it, it's, it's going to be a virtual impossibility for them to maintain all this because you'd have to stop every ride every time somebody gets off and wipe it down. If they go by the regulations that are being proposed now and keeping right. people six feet apart. I mean, cast, I don't, the last time you were at the park, I don't know when it was, but cast members are very courteous and polite and they're trained to be that way and they don't like confronting people. So right. I can't imagine now you're asking a 20 year old cast member to come up to people and say, you need to be six foot apart or your, your seven year old needs to keep that mask on. I mean, that's, Right, very undisney, right? Yeah, and, and and that's the right. thing. More more than it, I can see Universal opening or Six Flags and things like that because they're not held to the standard that Disney is. Disney is, people expect to be in a bubble when they're there, and all these things will take the magic away, and they will have to. They're you know, it's they're not going to get away with not changing somehow. So there will be some changes, but you know, we we've been used to people forget that. Seatbelts, you know, were not common on roller coaster rides for years, and then they became there. And 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 you go into a show in Disney now to see the Little Mermaid, you know, at Hollywood Studios. And before the show starts, there's an announcement that there will be strobe lights if you have epilepsy, if you have, you know, and everything you go on says if you're pregnant, if you have a heart. Those weren't always there. Those came because of situations that happened. So there'll be new things that we'll get used to, and we'll just have to. But I, I think they're going to wait and be at the back of the line rather than the front of the line. Were you surprised to hear about Shanghai Disneyland, the opening, you know, the announced opening for May 11th? 
I, not really, because Shanghai again, as the Disney company doesn't even have a controlling interest in that. They they have less than fifty percent of the interest. So I, I think there was more right. the Chinese government saying we right. need to open. And people, I heard somebody the other day said, "Oh, why is China going first? Hong Kong is not open. Shanghai open, but Hong Kong. So they still have another park in China that has and, and Tokyo has it open. Paris has an open, and we have an open. So I I think if they're going to use some place for a test case, then Shanghai is a test for them to say. How can we get all this in there, you know, putting the six feet apart and wiping down the rides? But also, Americans are a lot different than the Chinese who are used to following regulations and orders. And, you know, they, it's sadly the society is a little more tyrannical than ours. And, you know, if, yes, they're, told, yeah, right, if they're told right. to do something, they have to do it. They have no choice. Here, you try to tell somebody, hey, we're going to take your temperature before you come in. And, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you can come in, but your daughter who's eight, you know, has is running. She can't come in. I don't think that's going to fly with too many guests coming to the party. And so there's there's a lot of stuff that needs to be worked out. But I'm glad to see that at least one park that they'll be able to look at will be open. But I think Disney, the compromise they'll make, will they'll try somewhere over the summer to open up Disney Springs and downtown Disney in California and maybe a resort or two with some of the restaurants just to give people that Disney taste. But uh, again, in my opinion, I don't think they're going to be open in the parks. I'd be very surprised if before the last quarter of the year, we see any of the parks open. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm in agreement with you there. And, and, you know, getting, it was interesting to see, you know, hear the, uh, the earnings call, uh, Bob Chapek talk about what, what they're doing in Shanghai and that the government is saying, you know, what, 30% of your daily capacity, which I found out was 80,000 normally. So it'd be 24,000. But then, you know, Chapek made very clear that we're not going to, open at that level. We're going to open at a, at a lower level than that. And over a few weeks, see how it goes and hopefully get up to that level. So um, that speaks to what you're saying in terms of how careful they need to be. Um, and, and the fact, yeah, I, I think, I think you're right. I think if they were calling the shots there, that probably wouldn't be happening right now. Right. Uh, and, and that's the other thing, the capacity issue that, you know, how do they even do that? What are they, if, if they said, okay, it's only for annual pass holders, well, pass holders live all over. I have a neighbor who's an annual pass holder here in New Jersey. So that wouldn't be just Florida. People would be traveling from all over the country. So then if they said, okay, it's just Florida, there'd be a rebellion. People would say, wait a second, why do they get to go for, you know, so, and then yeah. Yeah, the only way Disney has ever excluded people is price wise. So I could see them if they had, if they decided they were going to open and limit capacity, well, then they would say, okay, tickets are $300 a piece and we're going to limit it to, you know, 15,000 people and that's it. And then if someone says, I can't afford that, Disney will say, well, we're sorry, you know, that's what we have to do to limit it. And that's a fair enough way, you know, people will scream about the price like they always do. But if they had to do it, at least prices, they're not saying you from one state or you because you're a pass. So they're just saying, look, if you can afford it, we're open. But if you can't afford it, just wait a couple of months and we'll we'll loosen restrictions. But I, I, again, I don't think they want to deal with any of those headaches. Just my opinion, but judging by what happened in the call yesterday and what they did not say more important than what they did say. I, <laughs> I, you know, it's people say, Oh, well they didn't lose as much money, but that, that call was about the second quarter and the shutdown only happened in like the last two weeks of the second quarter. So right, for the U S parks, I, I right, found that interesting. Right. And they so, said that half of that billion dollars that they lost in operating income was just from those two weeks of the U.S. parks. Right. So now the third quarter, I'm waiting for July and August. That call is going to be 
very interesting because yeah. they're going to have to explain to their shareholders that we had zero profit coming in for close to three. If they don't open, then it'll be three months. So uh, that why I, I fully expect by July and August, that's when they're going to have a plan ready and say, okay, here they'll either say, we're going to try to open up for the Halloween and Christmas season and salvage it a little bit and make some money there. Or they might just say, look, we see no path to opening before 2021. So we're going to We'll take the hit. We'll wait. And sorry, shareholders. But they bought themselves a little time with that call yesterday by saying, I think that the phrase they used was, we have limited visibility on what can happen, which was corporate way of saying, we have no idea. Nobody has any idea. So, and, and it's kind I, of refreshing yeah. in a certain sense. You know? <laughs> so, you know, I, I people on online, all Disney groups, it's, it's like an echo chamber of Disney Facebook groups and social media where they were screaming that, oh, they didn't say anything. But again, if you listen carefully, they did. They gave you the answer. They said limited visibility, which means we don't know. So, right, right. So that kind of deals with the parks. Um, you know, you have thoughts on, for example, the movie end of things. Um, do you think that? Uh, and again, we're guessing here, but, you know, let me say any kind of insight you have on the movies, you know, what you think on that front would be interesting. And then uh, the obvious question is, do you think Mulan has a shot for July and and so on and so on? So any any insights from uh, your Disney experience on the movie front? Well, yeah, one of the things they said in the call, which was interesting and it was new, they didn't say this before, was they were now going to evaluate movie by movie what they're going to do with it. So that said, you know, if if theaters don't wind up reopening by the end of the summer, then they might just put Mulan out on video on demand and charge a little bit higher price, you know, maybe $30, $40 for people to, to rent it and try to make some money, some profit that way. But I think the bigger thing with the movie industry is Disney already, they, they're the biggest studio now in, in Hollywood. They control more of the market, 30, 40% of the market in Hollywood, but they were, their slate of films this year was only 10 movies. And you compare that to 10 years ago when the Disney company alone, not even with Fox in it, there was making 25 pictures a year. So the movie business is already changing. And now, now with, with everything backed up, if they wait to release in theaters in 2021, that means their slate for 2021 is now pushed back to two. So there's going to be, you'll see more production for Disney plus and for, television and then because it's cheaper to begin with and also it's easier they can get that product right out there and they can make money for video on demand so i, I you know i think the movie business will it's never going away people have been writing the obituary for movies for a right. hundred right. years so people you people need to sit in a theater with a group of people and feel that excitement and the energy and this cry and laugh and all that so uh, but i i think every studio is going to now only release at most 12 films a year. So you'll have, you know, movie theaters will be barren for a while and you'll get little indie films here and there, but most. That was, that was going to be my question. Do you think that opens opportunities up for smaller indie filmmakers? It, it's a double-edged sword because a lot of the indie filmmakers now are getting better deals from the streaming services because. Oh, right. Yeah, it, true. The, right. The, pro the problem with movie theaters is, and it's not their problem. They have to charge a lot more money because, they're not making Disney takes, you know, 70% of the profit the first two or three weeks, and then they start making the profit, the movie theater. So Disney gets, and all the students, not just Disney, but so independent movies, they don't do that. But are you going to get people to come out and see a smaller film 
that's you know the, the Shia LaBeouf made a wonderful movie called The Peanut Butter Falcon, which was this nice little tale, and and hardly anyone saw it in the theater. It was ignored in the theater. So people are now discovering movies on Netflix and on cable and on other stream that they say, oh wow, what is that movie? But it was in theaters and they just never saw it. So uh, that's going to be the. I'm we're, we're my dad's story. They've been working on making it into a movie, and that's one of the questions: Do we try to go for feature film and hope that people want to come out and see a story like that, or do we just release it right to one of the streaming services and you know, hopefully more people watch it there. So it's a oh, balance. Even Martin Scorsese, right? Is, yeah. is going there. <laughs> well, he, what, he, what do you, Martin, ahead, no. Martin yeah, Scorsese was an example of what I said about Harrison Ford before. No studio wanted to bankroll. It had Scorsese, it had De Niro, it had Pesci, it had Al Pacino, and nobody wanted to give them the money to make it because they didn't think people were going to go to theaters to see it and they wouldn't make their money back. So Netflix backed it because, and they were right, that first weekend, I think it was around Thanksgiving when it premiered on Netflix, millions of people watch, and people subscribe to Netflix just so they could watch that movie. So I, you know, it's, it's a very delicate balance at Disney now. And, and again, it's not just them. It's every studio is going to be fighting this battle of what do we do with our movies now? And, and do you, do you think that it's inevitable that the Academy, you know, kind of continues with that policy of, you know, um, I don't know how many days you have to be in the, in the theater now to be considered two weeks. Two weeks. Two okay. Weeks, yeah. So, they, well, they—I don't know. I guess the other day they announced they came out and said that they're going to lift that for this year. Maybe not every year, but because there's, you know, if theaters are shut down, all these movies have to be seen. So, for this year, they're going to lift that. But that was, you know, Steven Spielberg was on one side of the argument, and Martin Scorsese was on the other. Of, is a movie that goes right to Netflix? Is that basically a cable TV movie, or is it a movie movie? So. Right. But I think this year is going to be an unusual year. In, in, yeah. And, the, in the and you, as the industry changes, they're going to have to adjust to make decisions accordingly. Um, you know, listen, I, I started my writing career, my newspaper, you know, I was a newspaper columnist with Newsday every week. And there were like seven or eight other columnists, you know, now does, you know, uh, that, that, that's long gone and, and things have changed dramatically. And, and, uh, and the entertainment, the you know, the movie business is is undergoing a similar thing. Although I think you're right in the sense that while people don't need to go to the end of the driveway to pick up a you know a hard copy newspaper anymore, um, I think there is still the you know, the movie experience. There's still value there. So the question is, as you said, how 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 extensive how is that going to be? Right, and the same is true with books, music. There are people that still yeah. buy CDs, still buy books. But even if you go back to Wall for a moment. I mean, he did the same thing. He saw the industry changing where short films, which he made his bread and butter on, were not being screened anymore. So he said, okay, I'm going to make the first feature animated film. And everybody thought he was crazy. And he wound up, you know, that made his business. And then later on in the 1950s, when feature animation sort of started sliding down, he got into live action and then he got into television and then he got into themes. So he was always, you know, following whatever was next because you have to, if you don't, your business is going to die out. And that's why Disney is the most powerful company, you know, because of what, because of what Bob Iger did over the last 10 years, love him or hate him, acquiring all these other brands and everything else has sort of, even with closing the parks, he's made them, they have enough assets now where they could last for the next decade. They might not have had that if they didn't, you know, buy Marvel and Lucasfilm and Fox. Right. And, and the time, I mean, now the timeliness of Disney plus is just, Oh, sure. You know, it screams now. <laughs> well, they, uh, they said did the Disney plus 
was not going to make a profit until about 2023 because of all the money that bumped into it. And now with everything that's happened, they're expecting at the end of 2022, they'll be in the black. So it's amazing. That is. And, that, you know, and again, the, 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 the speed that they've uh, accrued subscription subscriptions, easy for me to say, <laughs> at, um, has been interesting. What do you think about now? So the Mandalorian, the second season kind of got on under the wire, right? So we're going to see that season two in October, but a whole host of other things naturally as all of Hollywood is on, is on hold. Do you, it's a short term question, obviously, but you know, Netflix has so much original content that it has produced and so on. And Disney obviously has its library and it's kind of catching up with the original content. Do you think this, you know, does this create a, at least a short-term problem for them um, or not? I mean, well, I, I think you said it right. It doesn't create a short-term problem with Disney because Disney can just go into its vaults right. and, and say, well, you know, one of the things people ask me all the time because I seem to be a, a rah-rah person for Disney and always positive about them. They said, isn't there anything you don't like about – and one of the things I don't like is they've ignored – Walt's Wonderful World of Disney show. They had all these great movies and TV episodes that were made that you really haven't seen in 40 years that have been buried. So I thought Disney Plus, it's one of the things they might do. And they're working on it. They're trying to get all the licensing issues worked out and residuals and things like that. But they have an incredible amount of movies and TV shows that are still timely that people have not seen for 50, 60 years that they could put right on Disney plus tomorrow. And there'd be a whole bunch of people who would enjoy them. So Netflix doesn't have that. Amazon doesn't have that. They're, they're behind in that count. So, and by buying Fox Disney gave them, that was their biggest move because now they have a library, not only their library, but Fox as well. So they, they Hulu and, and Disney plus are pretty, pretty set for the next year, even if nothing comes out. That's new. Yeah. And it, since I brought up The Mandalorian, which I mean, I, I loved it. I wrote a great review of it. What was your view of it, The Mandalorian? <laughs> well, as as a child of the 70s and 80s who grew up in the original Star Wars, that was when I watched that, I said, oh, oh this is as close as we've gotten in recent years to to what the original Star Wars was that sort of gritty feel it didn't none of it looked fake it it all and I know they were using some digital stuff but uh most of it was practical effects and the storyline and the grittiness I mean it was just it, it was a great way to draw people back and I think it was brilliant on their part because it launched Disney Plus and it also got people as the Star Wars was closing out you know the final chapter of the Skywalker films it brought a whole bunch of people back that were sort of jaded by it and and now they're yeah. getting back into it again so i think they did a, a great job i hope john favreau takes over the whole star wars thing to begin with it's- i am i am with you on that 100 percent. and even the i caught the first episode of the uh the documentary that they did they had the all the directors at the round table and oh, discussing right, yeah. things and i found that fascinating i don't know if you got a chance to see that yet, I, I saw a clip of it yeah it was great very well done very well done so let's switch over to um i guess the you know, Disney acknowledged on the earnings call that this would be, to no one's surprise, the last business to come back online. But what's your view on the cruise line? I Well, the cruise line, I mean, and it's not specific to Disney, but people, they now see cruise lines as like a hotbed of virus. They were already, be, before this, people were, you know, you, you heard every couple of months a story about some sort of sickness that broke out on a cruise line and all the passengers had to be evacuated or some people, you know, taken off in stretchers. So I think that stigma will be there. So Disney has done a brilliant job with their cruise line. They they came out of nowhere when they started it and rose almost right to the top of the industry. But they're going to be, even when they do come back, they're going to have trouble 
getting people to to go on cruises when it does come back. I, I, I again, I think cruise lines, the other ones might because they're desperate, but I think Disney's going to hold off on theirs for a while too for that reason. Well, I think that that trust issue, the brand and everything else that, yeah, it's got to be, I think they've got to really be clear and, and be happy that they're going to be well, comfortable doing it. But um, I do think that it seems, you know, my, my glance of the industry is that they have a higher degree uh, with everything like that's Disney though, right? They have a higher degree of trust and expectation among, uh, among consumers of cruises than do than do the other lines and and i'm and that's you know again i i don't know bob Iger or bob chafek personally but that's got to be frustrating for them because as a business they want to make certain moves but they have that sanctity of their brand that they cannot even risk you know the analogy i used and i'm sure lots of people have seen the meme now about the mayor from jaws you know not closing the beaches and all that but if you remember the scene in jaws I, it, there's a first attack and then the mayor says, oh, we can keep the beaches open. And then the second attack comes and the sheriff, Roy Scheider, says to him, you know, look, it happened again. And the mayor is in a state of shock and he's saying, well, you know, there's August and people will, we can open the beaches later this summer. And he says to him, you're now the mayor of Shark City. Like nobody's coming here because they saw this happen twice. So Disney, right. Disney doesn't want to be Shark City. They, God forbid, right. they open their cruise line or their park and something happens, they are going to be, even if it happens other places, they're going to be the ones that people point at and say, oh, look at that. They shouldn't have opened it up. So again, they don't, it's very tricky ground and they, they don't want to tread that ground until they absolutely have to. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, other, any, anything else that I'm not touching on, on the business front here with Disney that you want to want to make sure you get out there to to listeners. Well, I, you know, one of the things that somebody asked me the other day, and, and it was a good question, they said, what would Walt have done in a situation mm. like this? And, you know, we can't really, good. there's no way to know because the world has changed. He died in 1966. And I'd say around 1968 or 69, the world just changed completely of entertainment and sports and politics. And we're a different world now than we were back then. But there is a precedent, actually, because if you look at World War II, uh, when Pearl Harbor was bombed that Sunday morning, Walt was at home and he got a call. And it was from the U.S. Army. And because his studio was right next door to Lockheed, the military base where they were building all this uh, aeronautic equipment, everything for the war effort, they basically told him that we're taking over your studio. You have no choice. We're the Army. We could do it. We're the government. They commandeered his studio. And Walt lost his business for the entire four years of the war. And so instead of going and complaining and saying, I can't believe this, why won't they let me open up? He he took the opposite tack. He said, it's a sacrifice I have to make for the rest of the people in this country that I'm, I'm going to now turn my studio at a loss of profit. And he did. He lost. He had to lay off a lot of people. He said, I'm going to turn this into something where we're making uh, cartoons for the military, cartoons for the home front. We're, we're painting, you know, whatever he could do to add to the war effort. He did it at a loss of profit when other studios were making money on it. He decided out of his patriotic duty. So um, I think if you look at that, the Disney company is doing the same thing. They're losing profit, but they're doing it for the greater good of let's wait, let's they, because they are the leader. If they open up in June 1st, then others are going to say, hey, let's, and then it's all free for all. And right. God forbid something now, something may or may not happen. I'm not talking about, you know, what's going to happen with the virus. But if they do open and everybody follows them, then they're going to take the biggest fall. So I, I think they're doing the right thing by saying, let's wait and see. Let's see what happens. Let's take the cautious approach, which they've always done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get at least something on the entertainment front, um, sports entertainment with uh, NASCAR opening on May 17th. And 
they're not going to have going to have any fans, but <laughs> we'll see something that, you know, it, we'll see how that operates, how it functions and, and what the reaction is. I'm guessing that you're going to suddenly have, you know, like with the NFL draft, you're going to have ratings for NASCAR that they haven't had in at least in many years. So oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know you were watching the draft and you probably watch it every year for the Vikings, but uh, I, it, this the, year I watched yeah. all of it because I was so yeah. starved. <laughs> and, and that's I'm, I'm a casual football fan, and I, you know, when it's at Radio City here in New York, I'll pay attention to it. But I, I never was this year. I was sitting there, curiosity got the best of me, and something like. But people forget that Disney, you know, they talk about the movies and the parks, but sports, even though they don't own any teams anymore, they own ESPN. So without sports, you know, thank God Michael Jordan saved them and the the NFL draft saved them because that those are two big ratings things that are drawing advertising dollars but without that they're in big trouble there too so their networks have taken a little bit of a hit and will take even more if there's no new product for them to show and that's their biggest money maker is the networks people think of the parks the parks is 35 percent of the revenue more than 50 percent of it is cable networks and broadcast networks and all that and and you know every commercial now is the same it's all that tinkly sad piano music and you know we're doing the best for you and and that's what's needed right now but they're not making money on those commercials so uh you know, they're, they're taking a hit in lots of areas, not just in the theme parks. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. People forget about that, the sports angle with ESPN and, and how much of a moneymaker that is. And and it, I think it surprises, you know, with the changes going on in the industry, as we've talked about some of it, I think they're probably surprised to see how much of the cash flow still comes from places like ESPN and, and ABC. And they're also, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, I don't know if you followed this end of it extensively, but I'm, I was very intrigued by what Iger said. I mean, it's very clear to me that um, Disney has its eyes on not only more of, for example, the NFL, but also I think they've got their eyes on NFL ticket. I think AT&T, AT&T is like, they don't know what to do with it. They have direct TV. They're not happy. So it seems like Disney is v- with ESPN plus is very well positioned to grab NFL ticket when that contract is up. And I I think in two or three years, I can't remember exactly when, but that's going to be an interesting uh, development down the road to see how Disney plays that. Yeah. Well, good. Let's play. If you don't mind to finish this out, let's play. Tell me your favorites. All right. All right. All right. Here we go. Now ties are okay. And if you have more than one, that's fine. So whatever you want to do, or if you want to take a pass because you never thought of it before, no worries. So first off, your favorite musical group, act, or singer? Uh, Weird Al Yankovic. I know that sounds odd, but he's, uh, you know, I get child of the 70s and 80s, and he was, he parodied everybody, and he writes great original songs, too. Nice. I like it. All right. Uh, favorite movie? It's going to sound weird, but Poltergeist, because it was the first movie I ever saw on my own. So uh, in 1982, I was allowed to go, and I just fell in love with it, since it's a, it's not, you know, not E.T. or it's not Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it's my favorite Spielberg movie. Very cool. Uh, favorite television show? Saturday Night Live. Absolutely. From from the very beginning until now, every you know they're like a sports franchise. They have good years, bad years, but I, I they're pretty consistent. And I was lucky enough to work for them for a couple of years, so they they have a near a dear place in my heart. Cool. Um, your favorite male actor? Uh, Gene Hackman, actually, who's retired now, but I, I I don't think he's made a bad movie his entire career. You're, you're, you know, I, and you know what? Of all things, I always love him as Lex Luthor. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, that was probably my introduction to Gene Hackman was Lex Luthor. And and I just love when he says Otis Bird, Otis Bird. <laughs> but anyway, um, 
I'm glad you laughed at that because whenever I say things like that, they're probably like, <laughs> you know, two people in the world, I think, get it. Um, your favorite female actress, uh, female actress, female actor or actress, however you want to put it. Female actor. That's a, um, I like Amy Adams, I think is pretty good. She's, she's shown a lot of range, you know, comedy, drama. She, yeah. Um, and since you're in the business, I can ask you this, your favorite director. Wow. That's it. I don't want to offend anybody that might be out there hiring. So. <laughs> you can pass. Yeah. You know what? I'll, I'll go safely. I'll pick Robert Stevenson who directed all this classic Disney. He's dead now. He's not hiring anymore. So I'll go with him. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Your favorite book and or author. Boy, that's a good one too. I, you know, Mark Twain is my favorite author. And a lot of that has to do with the Disney thing because they're very similar in, in uh, so I said, I, Tom Sawyer, probably, I mean, it can't go wrong with Tom Sawyer. Every American boy grew up reading it. So there you go. Uh, favorite person from history. <sighs> well, that one, I, I think it's pretty easy. Walt Disney. I, okay. yeah, I, I can't, I, I, if I answered anybody else, I'd be just disingenuous there. Yep. Perfect. And, and completely understandable and, and spot on whether you wrote the Disney book or not. <laughs> um, your favorite healthy food. There are such things as healthy foods. Well, yeah, they tell me that. Yeah, after if I, I literally just had a meat lover's pizza with my son, and my son's looking at me like, "Can we eat all this meat in one sitting?" So, uh, boy, I, I uh, sweet potatoes. We'll say that. That's sort of healthy, I guess. Fair enough. Um, I'm in the same boat with you. Now, on the flip side, your favorite fast food establishment. Um, I and I don't know if this is a regional one that people know, but Roy Rogers. Had a uh, it was a, like roast beef and chicken and French fries and there's only a, a few of them left in the United States but uh, that that was my favorite all time fast food place was Roy Rogers. Excellent. And now the the last one, which is kind of very broad, your favorite guilty pleasure. Wow, favorite guilty pleasure. It's it, that's a good one. That's like you know I just said pizza and movies. I mean right. you're gonna mix them all. <laughs> pretty much everything I just said in the last. Five minutes is a guilty pleasure all rolled into one. Is watching a Disney movie, having pizza, just sitting around, you know, that's that's kind of my guilty pleasure. It's it's perfect. That's a good night. It's yeah. a good night. I like it. All right. And and the other question I guess is is what have you been doing, you know, during this crisis with your downtime? It's a lot of writing, a lot of uh planning marketing because you know, with with not being able to go out there on tour, you got to be more creative. How do you get people to to follow? So I have a, a Facebook page for Top Disney, and I've been, you know, my goal is every day to put something up there that's somewhat interesting, hopefully to people. And in the last month, we literally picked up about ten thousand people joined the page, not by me doing anything, just by because people are home and they're looking for stuff. And I, you know, I, I, that page, I spe- I made a, a editorial choice that I'm never going to talk about anything current on there or what's because you can find that on a million other Disney pages. So it's always fun little things I try to write, and I thank you so much because sometimes you you repost them on your uh, site. So th- that's what I'm trying to do. Is most it's based on nostalgia. I found a lot of the people that are on that page like nostalgia as much as I do. It's it's great stuff, and and again, I will put um, all sorts of links of yours in the the show notes, and and I appreciate you doing this. Thanks so much; it's been great. I and uh, I look forward. I what I look forward to is seeing you. We haven't met face to face, but what I would like to do is meet face to face in Walt Disney World. That's that's I think the ideal scenario. For that us. would be great. Or at a Cincinnati Reds game. So you're a Reds fan, right? Isn't it? Yeah. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, you know what? I had I had the honor of of interviewing Tom Brenneman 
Uh, oh wow! The Reds announcer, and I posted that today. I did that earlier this morning, so it was fantastic. I, I was down there for the All Star game with my dad, so it was my first time ever there, and I had a great time. I was a little confused that I could walk from Kentucky over to Ohio. That that, that <laughs> I'm not used to that. We were going from one state to another in in a few minutes, but it's it's uh, it's a nice ballpark. They did a yeah. good job. Chris, I, again, I appreciate it, and and please stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you, Santa. You and yours. All right, take care. All right, bye. It was really nice of Chris to mention my Pastor Stephen Grant novels. This episode of the Press Club C podcast is sponsored by, if you will, one of those 12 books. Now, Stephen Grant, a former Navy SEAL, one-time CIA operative and current pastor of a Lutheran church on Long Island, returns in a high-octane torn-from-the-headlines thriller titled The Traitor, a Pastor Stephen Grant novel. From pro-freedom protests in Hong Kong to a theft at the CIA to a French monastery, this 12th book in the series packs a wallop in terms of action, intrigue, faith, consequences, and justice. Now, Grant is looking forward to a time of prayer and reflection during a retreat at this monastery in France, but when he stumbles upon an infamous CIA traitor in a small village his plans change dramatically. While a debate rages over government secrets and the intelligence community, a deadly race for survival is underway. This novel is jam-packed with action and serves up fascinating places, unique characters, and some interesting discussions. I really hope that readers enjoy it. Paperbacks and Kindle editions of The Traitor, a Pastor Stephen Grant novel, are available over at Amazon.com and signed books at Ray Keating Online. So that's it for this episode of the Press Club C podcast. Thanks once again to Chris Lucas for being my guest. And by the way, we'll link to all of his stuff in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Your feedback and suggestions are most welcome. And please check out my various endeavors and books, including uh, going to keatingfiles.com for my columns, or some of my columns, I should say. Check out my other podcast, Free Enterprise in Three Minutes. Uh, my latest nonfiction book is Behind Enemy Lines, Conservative Communiques from Left Wing New York. My other uh, recent nonfiction book is called Free Trade Rocks. And of course, again, there are my 12 Pastor Stephen Grant novels and short stories. Also check out my to-do list solution planners. And for this episode in particular, please go over to DisneyBizJournal.com for all sorts of news and commentary and analysis on the broad Disney entertainment business. Thanks again, and God bless.